you would please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 22. This will be our final sermon in the book of 2 Samuel. How can I keep from singing your praise? Do you know the song? How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the King, and it makes my heart want to sing. Are you a person like that? Why do some people have this kind of disposition about them? People so full of joy, so quick to praise and glorify their God. Do you know people like that? Do you want to be a person like that? A person who says, how can I keep from singing your praise? If so, what will it take to form you into such a person? There's a scene from the Gospel of Luke that I think gives us a hint at the answer. There is a woman who was known by all to be a sinner. And she came into the house of a Pharisee to meet Jesus. She brought with her an alabaster jar of ointment and poured it all over Jesus' feet, anointing His feet with this oil. The Pharisees were indignant. How could Jesus welcome such a sinful woman? But Jesus went on to rebuke them and to commend her. And in his final words, he said that the reason she loved him so much was that she had been forgiven so much. This morning, I want to suggest that's the key. That's the reason why some people are so full of joy and so quick to give praise to God because they have such a keen and deep awareness of how much they have been rescued from. They know that God is the rock of ages. A rock of refuge to those who are in right relationship with Him. And this gives them great reason to give God praise. The keys that loosen our lips to praise are eyes that see God's amazing love. Eyes that see God's hand of salvation throughout the ages open Lips that say, our God, our help in ages past, our hope in years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. We come this morning to our final passage in Second Samuel. First Samuel, if you'll recall, began with a song of praise on the lips of Hannah looking forward to God establishing His anointed King in Israel. A song that began by saying, There is no rock, there is no God 
like our God. A song that predicted bringing down the haughty and lifting up the humble. Second Samuel also ends with the song. In Second Samuel 22, David looks back to the ways that God has been a rock and a refuge to him. A God who has saved him. A God who has strengthened him. And it gives him reason to praise. In 2 Samuel 23, he looks forward to another coming king, King Jesus. God has been a rock of refuge throughout all of the ages to those who belong to him. And it gives us reason to praise. All of chapter 22 is a song of praise, but the specific praise portions are found at the beginning and the end of the chapter. And so that is going to serve as our reading for this morning. We'll look at the beginning and the ending of chapter 22. And then in my sermon, we'll look at that which comes in between and at chapter 23 as well for reasons that ground this great praise on David's lips. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in chapter 22, verse 1 through verse 4, then we'll skip to the bottom. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Look now at verse 47. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What does God want to get done in this passage? What is the aim of this song? God wants... To open your mouth so that you would sing God's praise. But like I said earlier, the keys that open our lips are eyes that see God as the rock of ages. And that's my sermon in a sentence. To loosen our lips, to sing God's praise, we need eyes to see His amazing grace. Do you want your lips loosened? then you need your eyes opened. There are four things in these two chapters that we need 
to see. Three of them looking to the past in chapter 22. One looking to the future in chapter 23. Let's dive into them. The first thing we need to see. We need to see the way that God saves us. This comes out in verses 5 to 20. I'm not going to comment on every line in this stanza, nor every line in these two chapters. But in this stanza particularly, I want to draw your attention to two things. First, the depths from which David is saved. And second, the unique lens through which he sees his salvation. What was David saved from? He was saved from death. Look at verse 5. The waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. This is not simply a poetic way to describe David's death. It is that. But it's not simply that. David was literally threatened by death Throughout his life, Saul pursued his life. The surrounding nations were a threat to his life. Ishbosheth, at the beginning of 2 Samuel, is a threat. Absalom seeks to kill his father. These threats were real threats of death, but not only threats of physical death. The threat of death also called into question the promises that God had made to David. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as king, only to be pursued for the rest of 1 Samuel by Saul. In 2 Samuel 7, David is promised an eternal throne, only to have his own son seek to overthrow that throne. But David rested on the promises of God. And so as verse 7 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. From His temple He heard my voice and my cry came to His ears. David did what people of faith do. David did what we need to do. He knew the promises of God even in the midst of his distress and so he prayed the promises of God. He pleaded the promises asking God to deliver him and God did deliver him. He was his rock of refuge. That's what David was saved from, death. But notice the lens through which he sees his deliverance in verses 8 to 16 specifically, but also in verses 17 to 20. The language he uses is very unique. I'm going to read some of these verses to you, and I want you to notice that the language used here doesn't describe anything in the historical account that we have read thus far in First and Second Samuel. Verse 8, he says, the earth reeled and rocked. 
The foundations of the heaven trembled and quaked because God was angry. In verse 10, God bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Verse 12, he made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds a gathering of water. Look down at verse 16. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. And in 17, He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Verse 20. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. Again, this is not simply metaphoric language. It is language that is grounded in history. What makes it unique is that it is not David's history that it refers to. Where does this language come from? It comes from the book of Exodus. The lens through which David sees his deliverance is through the lens of God's past deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Remember, God brought His people out of Egypt, then through the Red Sea, where, to quote the language of the chapter in front of us, the channels of the sea were seen. Then God led them to Mount Sinai, where the earth reeled and rocked and the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. Then he led them into a broad place because he delighted in them. As David looks back on his life, he looks back further to the Exodus. David sees himself like Moses even, one who was drawn out of the water. He sees God as the rock of ages, his refuge in continuity with the people of old that came before him. The God who was committed to his covenant people Israel in the past was also committed to his covenant king David in his present distress. He was safe and secure Because the God who makes promises, I want you to hear this. He is powerful enough to keep those promises. David had a theocentric vision for his life. Do you? As David looks back on his life, he knows that there is nothing that has happened in his life that was by chance. God was working through it all to bring about good for the man after his own heart, the man of God's own choosing. David had eyes to see the God who saves us. Therefore, his lips are loosed to praise him. But not only that, he also has eyes to see the God who strengthens us. This comes out in verses 32 to 46. I'm skipping verses 21 to 31 for now because chapter 22 is like a sandwich. The God of salvation in verses 5 to 20, 
You may mark off those sections in your Bible. The God of salvation in verses 5 to 20 are parallel with the God who gives strength in verses 32 to 46. Verses 21 to 31 stand at the center of the chapter, and so I will save it for later. In my first point, I said that we need to see that God saves. It was God who delivered David from his enemies. God who delivered David from death. But on the surface of things, if you were to go back and read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it may seem as though David was the one who saved himself. After all, wasn't it David who eluded Saul so many times? Wasn't it David who tricked the Philistines on more than one occasion? Was it not David's army that killed Absalom and David's army that killed Sheba? Yes. But in all of this, as David looks back on his life, he knows that it was God who gave him strength. Look at verse 34. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. So it was God who enabled him to elude Saul. Look at verse 35. David says, He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. And in verse 36, You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. God is the one who strengthened him. That's why he was victorious. It's not as though David didn't fight battles with his own hands. He did. But he sees that it is God who strengthened his hands. Verse 28 says, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. But why? Look at verse 40. Because you equipped me with strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. What's the takeaway for us? All of the gifts and talents that we have, all of them are from God. Do you have eyes to see this? All of our successes are from God. Do you have eyes to see this? Or do you think it's your own intelligence and your own hard work that has put you in the place that you are? If you have eyes to see God behind all of your successes, you will have lips that are quick to praise Him. And even more than our temporal successes, our very salvation from our sin is from God. We do not save ourselves. God saves. All we have is by God's grace. Do you believe that? I know you do. If you do, then all praise belongs to Him. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, all glory belongs to God alone. We can't take credit. David sees this, and so David sings 
God's praise. But I'm getting ahead of myself speaking of salvation from sins. Let's now turn to the third thing we need to see if we're going to sing God's praise. We need to see ourselves the way God sees us. And this comes in the very center of this song in verses 21 to 31. Beginning in verse 21, David basically gives what he believes to be the reason behind God's deliverance of him. Look at verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. He repeats that almost verbatim in verse 25. This should raise your eyebrows. This should raise all kinds of questions in your mind. Did David really think that he deserved God's deliverance? Did David think that his good works were what led God to save him? And if he believed that, was he completely delusional? Anyone who's made it thus far in 2 Samuel knows that David has sinned greatly. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then went ahead and murdered her husband, Uriah. And this is simply to list the two worst of David's sins. How can this man say that he is righteous? How can this man say that he is clean? I want to say that I do not think that David believes in works righteousness at all. I don't think he's delusional at all. I think David knows exactly what he's saying. And I think he sees things rightly. He sees things the way that God sees things. More importantly, he sees himself the way that God sees him. Why do I say that? We have to remember the context of this passage. Remember that when David sinned, and when he was then confronted by Nathan for his sin, he repented of his sin. His repentance is recorded in Psalm 51. Very familiar psalm to most of you. Notice what he says, beginning in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He goes on to show us that he is fully aware. Fully aware. Not delusional about his sin. He says, for I know my transgression. And my sin is ever before me. He says later... In sin was I conceived. He says, against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done that which is evil 
in your sight. He knows he's a sinner. And so he prays, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And friends, God answered his prayer. Nathan says to him, back in 2 Samuel 12, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. You see, David's greatest threat of death came not from external enemies, even the enemies in his own house. David's greatest threat of death was the threat of God's judgment because of his sin. But God forgave his transgressions. God cleansed him from his sin. And so now David is clean. He is righteous. He says repeatedly, he is blameless. He is pure. So in verse 27, notice he says, with the purified, you deal purely. He's aware that there was a cleansing process that happened at some point in the past. With the purified, you deal purely. David is not delusional. He's not resting on his own good works. He's fully aware of how sinful he is. And God is fully aware of how sinful he is. But David is also fully aware of what God has done for him. He's taken away his sins. David is fully aware of God's mercy. And so, he has the audacity to do what all of us need to do if we are in Christ. To see himself the way God sees him. Friends, if we are in covenant relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter so much what you think of yourself. It doesn't matter so much the way that you see yourself. You need to know that God sees you, if you are in Christ, as righteous. He sees you as clean. He sees you as pure and blameless in His sight. And here's the takeaway. You will never have lips to sing God's praise unless you have eyes to see God's grace. You won't have confidence to shout His name until you have become confident in His great love for you. As I mentioned in my prayer earlier, Tim Keller died on Friday. He has left us with so many great sermons, so many great books. I hope that you'll engage with them. His best is probably his shortest, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. But I want to quote something from his book on marriage that Kurt Romig posted on Facebook yesterday that I think gets to the heart of what I'm trying to say here. To be loved... And not known is comforting, 
but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us from any difficulty life can throw at us. Do you believe that God is a rock of refuge? A mighty fortress. This is the foundation on which we stand. Seeing that God sees all and yet loves us still. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now, if we are in Christ, when God sees us, when God looks on us, He sees us through His Son, through His perfect life, through His sacrificial death for our sins. This is how God sees us, and it is the way that we need to see ourselves. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure, safe from wrath, and make me pure. Hopefully you see the emphasis I'm trying to drive home. But with this point clearly impressed upon your minds, I want to pause for a moment and make sure that you have caught an important qualification that I have been laying down all along. God only sees us as pure if we have been washed. If we have received His mercy. God's wrath only passes over those who are in right relationship with Him through the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way to be put into a right relationship with God is to first see that we are sinners under God's righteous wrath. Sinners in need of a Savior. The only way that we can come into right relationship with God is through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And the only way that all of the benefits of what Christ has done for His people on the cross can be appropriated, can be made ours, is through faith, not through works. Through repentance from our sin and faith in Jesus Christ. If you see all of that, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that Jesus is the only Savior, then you are what Hannah at the beginning of Samuel and David at the end of Samuel call humble. If you don't see all of that, you are what Hannah and David call haughty. And listen to the central line in this final song in the book. It's right there in verse 28. You may circle it. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty 
to bring them down. For the humble, God is a rock of refuge. For the haughty, God will pour out his wrath. As verse 27 says, with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. So how do you see yourself today? As a sinner in need of a Savior? Or as a pretty good person who will probably be okay when you die? If that's the way that you see yourself, you are sadly not seeing things clearly. I pray that God would open your eyes to see that you need a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior you need. When you see that, when you see that clearly, that is the key to unlocking lips that give praise to God. So that we can with David in Psalm 51, after he's confessed his sin, after he's been reminded of God's grace, say, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So chapter 22 looks at the way that God was a rock of refuge for David in the past. Chapter 23 looks to the future and here we're given the final thing We need to see if we want to sing God's praise. We need to see that God's way ahead is secure for us. God's way ahead is secure for us. In chapter 23, verse 1, we see that the last words of David are an oracle. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. I'm reading through Isaiah right now. I'm noticing this morning it was Syria and Cush. An oracle concerning these nations. Oracles are generally a prophetic word. And that seems to be the case here. Notice in verse 2, David says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So we know that whatever is going to follow from this is the very word of God. A certain word. A sure word word, and likely a word that refers to something that will take place in the future. What does it say? David speaks of a future time when someone, verse 3, will rule justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Literally, will rule over all mankind, and will rule like the sun that was made to rule over the day all the way back in Genesis 1. This future king will rule over all of the earth and his rule will be a blessing to the whole earth. It will be like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What a glorious picture 
We know the horror of those who rule with injustice. We know the pain of those whose rule brings about more thorns and more thistles instead of the green grass of blessing. But David says, one day all of that will be gone and in its place will be a ruler who brings blessing to all the earth. This is looking forward to the day when God would fulfill the promise that he made to David back in 2 Samuel 7. As verse 5 says, his everlasting covenant with David. The promise of a king who would rule over all people for all time. And as verse 5 says, this is a secure word. A secure oracle. A secure promise. This is speaking, I believe, of the return of Christ. Great David's greater son. On that day, all of the enemies of God and His people will be dealt with. Look at verse 6. Worthless men are all like thorns to be thrown away. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 13. That on the last day, the Son of Man will gather the weeds and throw them into the fiery furnace. But He will gather the wheat into His barn. The enemies of the King will be dealt with. The people of the king will be safe and secure. This is a sure promise. This is our hope. Do you want to have joy that erupts in praise? The only way to have joy is to have hope. And where do we find hope? We find hope by looking back at what God has done in the past to save And to strengthen. But we also gain hope by looking at the God who makes promises for the future. Not only what God has done for us in Christ, but what God will do for us in Christ. And when we see into the future through the promises of God that we have a future that is secure, that gives us hope. That gives us joy which results in praise. What did John Newton say? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. To loose our lips, to sing God's praise, we need eyes that see God's amazing grace. Let us pray that he would give us such eyes. Father, we thank you for your word as we do each week. But we know that without your spirit, who takes your word and applies it to our heart, that we will not hear what you are saying to us. And so would you open our ears, open our eyes, so that we may see your amazing grace. I pray that we would also see the reality of your coming wrath, so that we'd be all the more amazed 
by your grace and that we would foul, flee to the fountain. To look to thee for rest. Let us hide ourselves in thee. We pray that you would help us to do that this day. In Jesus' name, amen.